Let's turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and this morning we're going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful, And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my head as I lay on my bed. As I was looking, behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind, and as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruits. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, 
if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king." For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descend from heaven saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was filled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like the cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and for my majesty and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. 
So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are true, and His ways just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn to this remarkable chapter in the Bible, we pray, Lord, that you would impress us with its message, that you would give us understanding, and we would hear what it is that you intend for us to hear out of this chapter, that we too would be impressed with the truth that Nebuchadnezzar proclaims here and proclaim to the whole world, that we too would see who rules that we too would be praising and honoring you constantly because you are worthy, that we too would see that all your ways are true and just and that we too would be walking in humility before you, our God. Lord, do this through your word, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word has been given to instruct us and that it is by your word we live. So please speak to us this morning through your word and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have played the game King of the Hill? Or sometimes it's called King of the Castle. It's a common, famous children's game. It seems kind of natural, actually, right? You don't even need to really teach kids this game. They kind of just know how to play it automatically. There's sort of a hill. Um, You want to conquer it and you want to push everybody else off that hill. That's how the game works. Everyone's trying to be the king of that particular area and you push the kids off to win. The winner is the only one who is standing on the hill, right? We've all probably played it. Back home in Canada, um, with all the snow that we would get, the plow would come constantly to our house on a weekly basis, two or three times a week sometimes. And we had quite a lengthy driveway. So at the end of our driveway would be an enormous snow mound that was even taller than our house. And we would play King of the Hill on that enormous snow mound. And that was a lot of fun. Or you can play it on a dock as well, right? Everyone gets on the dock and the last person who's standing on the dock after everyone gets pushed off is the king. And while this is a harmless children's game, in other settings, the stakes are a lot higher, right? Because King of the Hill, yes, it's a children's game, but that phenomenon of wanting to be the only one uh, ruling is actually not just a children's game. It happens all the time. And the stakes are a lot higher depending on what the hill is, right? The essence of the game is who is the king? Who is the strongest? Who rules the hill? And if the hill is a nation, then the stakes are really high. And you can think of famous um, examples throughout history, the, the Caesars, um, who would, Julius Caesar and those other rivals who would want to rule Rome. That was, a game, that was not really a game, but that was like the game King of the Hill. And the stakes were high. Heaven and earth, when that's the hill, then the stakes are really high. Who is the king of heaven and earth? Who rules heaven and earth? Is there a rivalry that's going on? There certainly are people who are setting themselves up on that hill, but who truly rules that particular hill? Throughout the Bible, God plays 
king of the hill. Turn with me to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. And throughout the Bible, this is a major theme that God has to teach men who is the king. Because not everybody acknowledges that God rules in the heavens, as we read in our chapter this morning. Psalm 83, verse 13. And this is actually referring to a bunch of nations that are opposing God, thinking that they can oppose God. And in verse 13, the psalmist says this, O my God, make them like the whirling dust, or like the tornado, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. He's praying that God would be rough. That God would play rough here with these countries, these nations. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord or Jehovah or Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. See, that's something they don't know. They think that he's not the king of the hill. They think that he isn't the sole ruler of all the nations and over all the earth. And the psalmist is saying, God, kick him off the hill. Show them who is the king. And this is a major theme, as I said, throughout the Bible. And it's not a game with God. This is not a matter of fun. This is a matter of right and wrong. God is righting a wrong by kicking these guys out. God is setting things straight by making known that he is the king. It is right and just and true for God to do that. And so we're not to think that God is just this super strong guy that just so happens to be so strong that he can rule the hill and it's not fair and it's not right and it's not just. But that this is his rightful rule. And any rival to that rule, it's sin. This is what the chapter, let's go back to Daniel 4, is all about. The commentator John Goldengay says this about this chapter. The chapter concerns the question, who is king? That's what the chapter is about. But by its form, it gives us the answer before we begin. Right? Notice how the chapter begins. It begins uh, with the announcement, who is the king, by the defeated one. Nebuchadnezzar sends out an imperial announcement in this chapter. This is uh, the whole chapter, most of it anyway, it goes to the third person um, in a small section, but most of this chapter is actually a proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar sent out throughout his kingdom. And just reflect upon what a big deal this is. Nebuchadnezzar, in the annals of history, was in fact one of the greatest kings, if, if not the greatest king who's ever ruled. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, if you line up all the great kings of the past or even today, he's way at the top. Even God uh, says that he was a great ruler, king of kings, that he was ruling over all the earth. And so you have this very powerful ruler that is making an announcement to the, his whole realm that God is the true ruler and that he is essentially nothing at all 
and that God alone is the King, the Most High God. What a huge deal this is. Now, today we have a lot lesser rulers, right? Um, Obama and the different uh, heads of different countries today are not like Nebuchadnezzar. But even today it would be odd if a letter like this was sent out, wouldn't it? Could you imagine the controversy if uh, the President Obama wrote a proclamation throughout all of America, just America, and said, God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His rule is forever. All the earth is counted as nothing. And I'm just writing this so everybody knows this. And I'm going to tell you what he's done for me. What an amazing thing this would be. So here, this record that we still possess in the 21st century is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the greatest kings of all time. His record that God is the king of kings. We can either choose to ignore this or we can listen to what Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, has to say. And I imagine when they received this proclamation in maybe writing or some town crier came to town with this message. I'm sure everyone was used to getting messages from Nebuchadnezzar and they all gathered around to hear this message and none of them would have expected to hear this, right? This would have been totally unexpected. It's so strange that there must have been an incredibly strange event that took place in order for this to happen. Something pretty radical had to have taken place for Nebuchadnezzar to say this. And indeed, a radical thing did take place, which he says here he wants to tell us about at the beginning of the chapter. Um, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 2, it's, it's pleasing to me. It, I'm glad to tell you, in verse 2, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. He's happy to share this news. He's not re- even reluctant to share this news because he has learned the, tr- the, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the rule of God, and that that's a good rule. Let me ask you, does it please you? Are you glad to tell others about the mighty things that God has done for you? Is that something that re- you do with reluctance? Or by, by the nature of what you've learned about God through his actions, are you like Nebuchadnezzar, excited, glad, unashamed, to proclaim who God is to those around you. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, and he was in a very unique situation. So he sets up the letter by making us really excited to hear what he's going to say. This is the third incident now we've read uh, where God does a miracle in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And each time we've noticed the, the earlier two, Nebuchadnezzar has certainly been impacted by what God has done, but it hasn't changed him. This time he's changed. This time there's a difference. And it's like this is how God works in a person's life often. He often works by turning up the heat little by little until finally um, you just can't resist anymore uh, what he's revealing to you. But you can look back and say, yeah, he revealed himself there, he revealed himself there, but I was too dumb or I was too slow and I didn't get it until finally he really turned up the dial and there was nothing more that I could do. So certainly chapter 4 has a relationship and a connection with what's gone before in God's work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but as we will see, there's actually a stronger connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5. The, the major theme of chapter 4 and chapter 5 are very closely related. So there's a strong connection between them. Now look at verse 4. 
Nebuchadnezzar begins to tell the story of what happened, what made the change. And here's how he begins. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. The Aramaic word for ease might better be translated secure. He's not just comfortable relaxing on the, on the sofa in his house, but he's secure, meaning there's no danger at all. There's absolutely no threat to his kingdom at this time. Everything is at peace. Everything is calm. And he's not worried about a thing. And the word flourishing is an interesting word. It's literally the word green. It's a plant word. It's a tree word, which is interesting in light of this vision that he got. He said, I was secure, and I was just blossoming and flourishing, and I was green in my palace. Everything was well. No fear, and everything's going well. Just what every ruler wants, right? Just what every person wants in their life. All is well. Secure from all earthly threats. But what was he not secure from? God, right? Secure from all earthly threats. In his mind, nothing can touch him except God. And we are not to be fooled by earthly security. A person may have all the earthly security they want. They can buy the best um, uh, security system so that no thieves can break in. They can have the best health care. They can have eat super healthy and everything's going well. And you can say, hey, I'm in a good place right now. Nothing can touch me except God. You can never secure yourself from Him through your own works and through your own efforts. Harry Ironside says this about Nebuchadnezzar. Think of that. At rest and flourishing while still in his sins and a stranger to God. Isn't that ironic? That many people in this world are like Nebuchadnezzar where they feel good, everything's going well, they're happy with life. They're secure and flourishing, but they're not right with God. They're actually in the most dangerous peril that you could possibly be in. And there's a deceitful security that they feel that they they have. Ironside says, There is a deceitful rest, a deceitful peace, which lulls many a soul into false security. To be untroubled is no evidence of safety. To be at peace does not prove that all is well. Be sure that your peace is founded on the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Then you will have peace, which is true and lasting. And if you have the peace that comes through Jesus Christ, then, amazingly, everything else can fall apart in your life, right? You can lose your job. You can lose your health. You can lose all your earthly security You can be in a crisis mode where people are destroying your life from a physical sense and you can actually know that you're actually safe, right? You're actually, you actually are secure. Everything is well as we sing in our our songs, uh, it is well with my soul, right? Because of the bliss of the glorious thought that uh, he's nailed all my sins to the cross and I bear them no more. Amen? And so because I'm right with God, this, this hymn writer is saying, my, my family can drown in the waves and it is still well with my soul. On the other hand, if you are not at peace with God through the blood of Christ, you can have everything going well and it is not well with your soul. That would be a deceitful 
uh, peace that you have if you think all is well. So here is Nebuchadnezzar. In his mind, secure, green, all is well. And then in the next verse, there's a deliberate contrast with this. He is now suddenly troubled. Because all of a sudden, from outside the earth, he's receiving trouble, right? He's receiving a dream, which he knows again is from God or the gods. And it's troubling him. Why are you troubled, Nebuchadnezzar? There's no earthly threat here. And he's all agitated and fearful and anxious. And a person might come and say, this man's out of his mind. Nothing is wrong. And he says, yeah, something's wrong with God. Something wrong, something's wrong with me and God right now. And I, can't, I can't sleep much anymore. And I feel like God's out to get me. doesn't feel good when you feel like God is against you. Because God came knocking on Nebuchadnezzar's door. And this time it wasn't about his kingdom, but about Nebuchadnezzar himself. When all is comfortable, God changes everything in a moment. And sometimes that troubling is exactly what we need to wake us up into reality. Everything is well and you're not thinking about God. And God comes and troubles you and makes you uncomfortable so that you come to find your peace in Him. How many of you know that when, when you know something is wrong with you and God, it doesn't really matter what earthly comforts you have. It's just not going to satisfy you. You're never going to have real peace unless you know you're right with God, right? When I became a Christian, it was during Christmas time in 2006, and uh, boys, I, was, I had no appetite. I could hardly sleep. I was so anxious. I was so, had no peace whatsoever. It was the lowest point of my life. I was full of anxiety, and yet, all around me was the most wonderful sea. I was with my family. I was eating good food. I was totally safe at home, but I had no peace because I knew I was not right with God. It's so important for peace in life to be right with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at verse 6 through 9. Nebuchadnezzar calls his magicians... He doesn't require them to tell the dream like in chapter 2. He just wants the interpretation. But at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he knows that he can get an interpretation from God through Daniel. Perhaps he just calls his magicians because it's court etiquette and he's been doing it for so long that he needs to. But he knows Daniel's the one that's going to give him the answer. The others don't know what the meaning of the dream is, but of course Daniel knows. Not because Daniel's smarter than they are, but because God has given him wisdom by his spirit, as even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes. Verse 10 through 12 of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar shares the dream and he, he says, what I saw in my dream was this very tall, strong, secure, flourishing tree. Sounds like him, doesn't it? It's, it everything seems to be going well with this tree. All the animals and creatures in the world just love this tree. They just um, benefit from it. It's very important in the world. And it's strong. He says in, in this uh, description, it says in verse 11, it was a large tree, it was a strong tree, it was a high tree, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, its foliage was beautiful, fruit was abundant. This tree is secure and green. And then all of a sudden in verse 13, there's a sudden change in the dream. So he's seen this beautiful tree, nothing's wrong. And then suddenly there's a problem. And where does the problem come from? 
one of the beavers that comes up and says, then I'm going to make a dam out of you. No, it comes from heaven, right? The trouble comes from heaven because an angel comes down and there's a, there is the sense of surprise in verse 13. Every time you ever read in the Bible and see the word behold, you know, I was looking and behold, there's a surprise. This is unexpected. The turn of events comes when, the, when uh, as Nebuchadnezzar describes it, an angelic watcher comes down from heaven. This term watcher, as applied to angels, is, is only found in the Bible in this chapter. And it's found three times in this chapter. And the sense here is that the angels are like guardians. They are uh, God's eyes. Not that he needs them, but he employs them. And they watch over, they keep, they guard. Um, they're in charge of, like prison guards, the earth. And they stand by to do God's bidding. The Bible certainly makes it clear angels are real and they serve God and do his will. Not because God needs them, but he's chosen to run his government through these angels. The angels of God show us God's imminence in the world, that God is actively involved in the world. It's not that God is distant and that the angels come and do things independent of God, but angels show how God is imminent in the world, actively involved, and angels also show God's transcendence over the world. And even though God is actively involved in the world, we must never forget his transcendence above the world. He works through angels. He's like a commander with an army, a host. This shows his transcendence. God is, in, in truth, watching over all and controlling all. And so this declaration from the angel isn't a rogue angel doing his own thing. This is the declaration from God himself. And what's the declaration? In verse 14, he shouts out and speaks as follows, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, essentially take away its security and take away its flourishing. That's essentially what this announcement is. Destroy this tree security, destroy its flourishing, chop it down. Take away its importance in the earth. All of a sudden. In verse 15 at the beginning, we see that it's not a total destruction. There's something very strange that happens. The angel says, but leave the stump with the roots and chain it. Chain this uh, stump so it doesn't go anywhere. That might be strange. Why would you chain a stump? No one chains stumps. But here's what he says. This is the meaning of the uh, bronze and the uh, iron band. The band is an imprisonment word. It's like a chain. Notice in the latter part of verse 15 through 16, the it changes to a him. And we begin to get an idea here that the, if we haven't already figured it out, that this tree is a person. And the angel says a very strange thing in verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. Now all the scientists might rise up and say, well, that's, you can't do that, right? But God, by his decree, can do whatever he wants. Take away his human mind 
and give him the mind of a beast. And when he's a beast, he'll live outside like other beasts do. He'll eat grass like other beasts do. He'll think like a beast. He'll basically be a man-cow. And it's temporary. A set time is given for him to be like this. Seven periods of time. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now in verse uh, 17, we see why the decree is given. Because we might wonder, why would the angel say this about this perfectly good tree? I mean, this tree's perfectly good. It's just benefiting everybody. It's flourishing. It's secure. What would be the reason of taking down this wonderful tree? And in verse 17, the explicit purpose is stated, which we need to pay very careful attention to, for this really is the major point of the chapter. Why does it say? And the decision is a command of the holy ones. Here's the explicit purpose. In order that the living may know something about God. In order that the living may know something about about God. Now I want to ask this question. What is more important to God? The the true knowledge of God and you knowing Him truly or you being comfortable and secure? What is more important to God, do you think? That you have a true thought of who He is and what He is? Or that everything is just nice and fine and dandy in your life, comfortable, without any problems? What do you think? That's an important truth, isn't it? That God cares more about you knowing rightly about Him than He does about everything going well in your life. And perhaps that's a reason why things don't always go well in our lives. Because our comfort isn't God's biggest concern. How many of you know that that's probably your biggest concern, right? (laughs) Our comfort is often more important than our knowledge of God but not to God. And he does things in our lives as we're seeing him with Nebuchadnezzar, and he will do things in your life. He will make you uncomfortable because it's good for you. And what is his goal? And you should know this. Hmm, God's goal is the true knowledge of him. That's like the big theme throughout the Bible. Know God, (laughs) rightly, truly. So maybe when we get into trouble, we should always... Just quickly move to the goal, right? Okay, what's God want to show me about himself? Or where am I thinking wrong here? Because if that's what's important to God, that should be what is important to me. A wrong needed to be righted. God doesn't do capricious things. He doesn't just look at the tree and say, I'm sick of that tree, cut it down, for no reason. There is a wrong here that needs to be righted. It is true and just and good for God to do this to this tree in order that the living might know, in order that the tree might know. And obviously what's going on here is the tree doesn't know. Obviously what's going on here is lots of people don't know. And God will act to make this right. The tree forgot who is the king of the hill. And the tree set itself up as king. The tree's thinking of itself, I'm secure. I'm flourishing. I'm strong. I'm high. I'm really high. And the scripture says, you don't know the most high. You think you're high? 
Wait till you learn about the Most High. Then you'll see that your height is nothing. Your height is nothing. I remember hearing once about, um, I, I heard this analogy once, which I thought was brilliant. If uh, the earth was a pool ball, from a pool to a billiard ball, if the earth was the side of a billiard ball, if you felt the billiard ball, you wouldn't be able to feel any of the mountains, any of the contours on that ball if it was reduced to the size of a billiard ball. You're holding it in your hand. Try to feel Mount Everest. Where is it? You can't. Mount Everest only is huge to us. Mount Everest is super high from our perspective. But from outer space, the astronauts look at the earth and it looks like a perfect sphere. There's no Mount Everest sticking up off of that sphere. And if we had our earth in our hand, we'd say, where's Mount Everest? I don't feel it. From God's perspective, there is no height. It's all from our perspective. And this tree was starting to think, I'm pretty high here. I'm pretty good. And he'd forgotten about the Most High. He didn't know God, the true King. We are actually nothing. What we are is only because of what God has given because of what God has set up. But on our own, we have no height, no glory, no splendor, no power. It only comes from Him. Robert Culver says about this verse 17, This verse, which solemnly declares God's sovereign, providential control over the course of human history, is the core of the book of Daniel. It summarizes the spiritual message, not only of this chapter, but also of the whole book. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whom he wishes. That means he gives authority to those angels or to men. But not because they're great. He sets up nobodies. The lowliest of men. And that's what you are, Nebuchadnezzar. You're nothing. I've given it to you. You only are what you are because I've given it to you. Heaven truly rules. In verse 19, Daniel is stunned for a while. As if he got hit over the head with a two-by-four because he knows what this means and he's shocked to think that Nebuchadnezzar is going to turn into a man-cow. He's shocked. And he's stunned. Nebuchadnezzar has to say, it's all right, tell me, what, tell me what, you, what you know. And he says, oh, king, if only it was for your enemies. And this shows the relationship they've built over 30 years. This incident probably happened about 30 years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel obviously have quite a relationship going on to make Daniel shut. Because Daniel's not cheering. He's not, yes, Nebuchadnezzar's going to get it. He's... he's Sad for him, as we should be, for our fellows who don't know God. In verse 20, he begins the, to tell the king what it means. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, that tree that was secure and flourishing and important in the earth, that's you. Just like you're secure in your palace right now, just like you're flourishing in your palace, just like everything is well and you're really important, that's you. And as we saw in chapter 2, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. There's a lot to do here about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is so very important in the Bible because as I said in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was the first 
king to rule over Jerusalem and God's people who was not a son of David. Since God set up the Davidic monarchy and promised that a ruler would always reign over them. Nebuchadnezzar was the very first and so he has a very important place in the Bible. And God wants to make it abundantly clear that Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is not the ruler. Nebuchadnezzar does not really have any power. Even though he knocked out the Davidic line, even though he came and wiped out Jerusalem and its temple and, and took away the line of David, which God had promised would be there, God wants it to be abundantly clear, God is in charge, not Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's doing. Remember Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. God gave Jehoiakim, that's the son of David, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Very clear. God wants not only Israel to know that, but all the world. Nebuchadnezzar is typical of, of uh, human government and human reign and human pride as well. What's true of Nebuchadnezzar is it's a lesson for all of us and for all rulers of all times. Human governments are no refuge whatsoever. It's amazing to me how people throw so much blood, sweat, and tears into setting up a human government that they think is going to solve all the problems and make everything good and make everything secure when really all power is in God's hands and God can at any time he wants just take it away. Don't waste your life in human politics. I'm not saying that it's not important, there's not a role for us to play, but never make human politics the, the center point of your life, that that's what it's all about in your life. And it, the most important thing is to make that right. The most important thing in life is the true knowledge of God and His worship and acknowledging His rule. All else is secondary. And men waste their time, really, because they don't know God trying to build houses of cards. God just blows it over with his breath. And God will one day set up his kingdom. There is a perfect kingdom and a perfect rule that's coming. And Jesus himself in Matthew 13, 31 to 32, even compared the kingdom of God to a great tree, right? Where the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Just like Nebuchadnezzar here is described as this tree that all the earth kind of is benefiting from. Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God at this time, you don't even see it, right? It's like a seed underground. Nobody even sees it. Nobody even notices it. But one day, all the earth will be blessed by that. Just as the stone fills the earth, all other trees will be chopped down and God's kingdom will be established. In verse 25 and 26, Daniel shares with Nebuchadnezzar the shocking decree. Nebuchadnezzar, you will be temporarily turned into a beast. Please don't hit me. Mentally, that is. You're not going to transform into one like a werewolf or something. You will be temporarily turned into a beast. You will live outside. You will eat grass. You will be chained. They're going to have to chain you so you don't wander away and get hurt. Like a madman is chained. How long will this be? Daniel reiterates the angelic message for seven periods of time. Now I'll just briefly uh, ask this question. How long is that? What is seven periods of time? Well, the, the Aramaic word here is Edan, 
and it simply means a time period. It's perfectly general. It could mean any period of time. It could be a, a moment. It could be a week. It could be a day. It could be a year. It could be a month. Any period of time. That's what the word Adon means. It's very general. But what we do know is it must be a long enough period of time here for his hair to grow like eagle's feathers and for his nails to grow like uh, bird claws. So obviously it can't be seven days. right? It can't be seven weeks. It's probably seven months or seven years. Most commentators think it's seven years, but really there's no way for us to know unless we have more information and we don't. So either for seven months or seven years, Nebuchadnezzar will be thinking like a cow. So whenever you read this word, Idan, you have to kind of look at the context and see what could the length of time be uh, in a, uh, regards of the, with the information that we have. And all we have is the, the long hair and the claws, so it's either seven years or seven um, months. It's not going to be seven centuries, right? <laughs> it's too long. And notice again in verse 20, 25 and 26 how the explicit purpose, why would this be done? It's given twice once again. In verse 25 at the end, until you recognize that the Most High, no, the Most High is the ruler. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar makes him the ruler, but he needs to recognize this, that he is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes, that you are not king because you're great at all. Your king because God has given it to you. And in verse 26, your kingdom will be restored to you, meaning God's going to actually give you back your power that comes from him after you recognize that it is heaven that rules so that you will be ruling but with the full knowledge that it's really heaven who rules, not you. That you won't take glory and credit and pride in what God has gifted you with. That's the explicit purpose. This is what is right for him to acknowledge. Now in verse 27, Daniel gives some advice. King, let me give you some advice. Because this really stinks for you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And perhaps there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now this advice can be taken in two ways. Uh, there's one way that the legalists would say, and they would say, Nebuchadnezzar, just stop sinning completely. Just don't sin anymore. That's what it says, right? Break away from your sins and do righteousness. So there's one way you can take this, and that's just in a very general sense. Stop your sinning and do do good. Do good works. And maybe God will not do this right away. Or you can look at this advice in a more specific way to the problem that is at hand. That Daniel's not just coming to him and saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're just a jerk in general. Just start doing good in general. But what he's saying here is more specific. That is, your sins of pride, your sins of failing to acknowledge God's rule, put that away and do righteousness, or maybe a better translation, do the right thing. That is, humble yourself and acknowledge who is the true king of the hill. So it could be seen more specifically. Let me give you some advice. Stop being proud. Stop ignoring God. Give him the glory. 
The second part about uh, doing mercy to the poor, show mercy to the poor, you can either look at that in two ways. You can say, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he'll prolong your time if you go give some money to charity. That's one way you can look at it. Just go give some money to charity, and by giving money, it will prolong the punishment. It's interesting that this was a big controversy in the days of the Reformation where the Roman Catholics would actually point to this passage and say, you reformers are wrong. See, giving money closes the time in purgatory and all that. So we can either take this as, go give just money to the poor and then God will prolong, you know, prolong your prosperity. Or you can see it in a more specific way. And what way is that? Well, first of all, to realize that the word poor uh, is the word low. So it could mean someone who's poor monetarily. But the idea is, show mercy to those who are low. Show mercy to those who are cast down. And turn with me to Isaiah 47. And I believe this is what Daniel means by this. And I've mentioned how the book of Daniel has deep, deep parallels and themes with the book of Isaiah. I mean, really to understand Isaiah, uh, Daniel, we must really understand the themes of Isaiah. But look at Isaiah 47, verse 1. And this is the very same thing. This is addressed to Babylon and it's addressed to their pride. And Daniel, or Isaiah here is saying that Babylon, you're so proud of yourself, you so, think you're so great, you're going to be cast down to the dust. And just look at the themes here. Look at the parallel with Daniel. So Isaiah 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind meal. Moreover, remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the Queen of Kingdoms. Now look at verse 6. I was angry with my people. I profane my heritage. You didn't, Babylon. It's not because you're great, because I was angry with my people. I gave them over to you. I gave them into your hand, and you, what did they not do? You did not show them, the low ones, mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. So, here the point is, Babylon thinks they conquered Israel because they're so great, and God's saying, no, I gave them into your hands, and you should have considered that and recognized it. If you had, you would have had mercy on them. If you had, you wouldn't have been gloating over them and being severe with them and thinking that they're beneath you. You would have been uh, showing more mercy to them and understanding your place, even your equality with them. So I believe actually this is what Daniel is saying. He's saying, King, you've been really rough with your captives, not just with the Jews, but with all people that you've conquered. The low ones, you think that they're beneath you. They're not. Acknowledge the rule of God. Show mercy to the low. And Daniel doesn't say this punishment won't come. He says, maybe your prosperity will be lengthened. Because as I mentioned, when an uh, apocalyptic vision is given, it's, it's determined it's going to happen. Daniel knew that this was going to happen.
that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't change unless this happened. God wouldn't have given the decree otherwise. Starting in verse 28, we have a change from the first person to the third person because Nebuchadnezzar at this point is not a sane witness of this time, right? The little section here in the third person, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in his right mind to know what was going on. And everything happened just as God said, verse 28, just as all things that God says will happen will in fact happen. Verse 29 and 30, uh, the king is reflecting, and here's what he says, Is this not Babylon the Great? It's interesting that in the book of Revelation 14, verse 8, 18, verse 2, the same phrase is also used. Babylon the Great is fallen, right? Babylon the Great is fallen. I don't personally believe that Revelation is literally talking about the city of Babylon like Nebuchadnezzar is, but Babylon here is typical or figurative of man's power and accomplishments and the pride that they take in them apart from God. And so Nebuchadnezzar here, typical of man's power and pride, looks over all of his city that he built, and by, make no mistake, it is a glorious city. That's not in question. And he takes pride in that. And he says this shocking thing. I have built it for a royal residence by my might, by my power, and for my glory. Isn't that the heart of man? Look what I did by my power for me. And we might laugh at that and say, well, he's crazy, but haven't we all often thought that way? And isn't that our great sin? Thinking that we stand independent from God with power of our own. It's amazing how different man's mind can be and God's mind can be. God sees reality. This is complete unreality. And man's mind is in a totally different place than God's mind is. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar really did build up Babylon brilliantly, and that was true. But what was false was that it was his might and it was for his glory. So the problem here isn't that you know, we do things and we acknowledge that something got done. The problem is that we don't acknowledge the true king and whose power it is and whose glory Uh, it is, belonging to. So the answer to pride isn't don't do anything, but it is give God the glory for what is done. And see in verse 31, he says, sovereignty has been removed from you. As easily as God gives it, so easily he takes it away. And in verse 32, we have once again the fourth explicit statement of purpose, obviously the main point of the chapter because it's being repeated so many times. After the angel says to him, you will be like a cow and eat grass for seven periods of time, it will be until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That is what Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Daniel here is speaking to Belshazzar. And he says uh, this, Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of a beast. He dwelt in place with, with, with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. 
His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that God sets over it whomever he wishes. And Belshazzar, you have to learn this lesson too. This is the obvious point here, not only in chapter 4, but really in the book of Daniel. Everything God has revealed so far in Daniel. Chapter 2, that prophetic map that God gave, that's his work. He set those guys up. Persia, Media, Greek, Rome, all of that. Who, who sent them? Was it just happenstance? Was it just man doing their thing and God was watching? It was God fulfilling his purpose in the earth. And we'll see this also when we get to chapter 7 and onward. Nebuchadnezzar, immediately, verse 33, is driven away from mankind and begins acting like a cow. The technical, psychological term for this is boanthropy, if you've ever heard of this before. It's when bovine and anthropos, it's when a man becomes a cow. And it's a technical term because it has actually happened since this. Uh, it's very rare, but psychologists have recorded uh, boanthropic incidents <laughs> where people actually act like cows and think they're cows. An amazing thing. And there's other animals that people sometimes think they're like as well. Lycanthropy is when they think they're wolves. It's where the whole werewolf legend actually comes from. What a thing for this king to do, let alone the greatest king in the world of all time. It's very rare that anyone is, becomes like a cow, and the greatest king almost, probably of all time is spent seven periods of time living like a cow, being drenched, chained, and eating grass. Can you imagine if oh, that happened with Obama? Could you imagine? On the news headline tomorrow, Obama... Uh, it suddenly uh, has a boanthropic fit. And he's, you can see the pictures of him eating grass out on the White House lawn. Because <laughs> you imagine. It's, it would be absolutely amazing if that happened. Stephen Miller writes, How ironic that the king who felt himself superior to other men had sunk to a subhuman level. There is no direct account of this in secular history. By direct, I mean no secular historian uh, directly wrote this, but there are allusions to it in secular history. Uh, there was a Greek historian named Abi Dennis, and he wrote a history of the Chaldeans and the Assyrians. And Abi Dennis writes of King Nebuchadnezzar that near the end of his reign, that Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some god or other. And Abi Dennis actually says that Nebuchadnezzar prophesied of the coming Persia, that, that his reign would be taken over by the Persians and the Medes. And that's an interesting uh, correlation with the book of Daniel. But Abi Dennis says Nebuchadnezzar, by the, near the end of his reign, was possessed by some god or another and disappeared. That's what he says. Uh, Barosus, a Babylonian priest who wrote the history of Babylon, uh, he says that Nebuchadnezzar, near the end of his reign, fell sick. That's very general, but it could be an allusion to this. Now look at verse 34 here as we come to the end of the chapter. As the prophecy that God gave uh, said it would be temporary, so it was. And after seven Idan, sanity returned from God to this bovine man. 
Sanity returned from God. Notice Nebuchadnezzar didn't do anything to get the sanity, but as God took it away, God gave it. And the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does when he's sane is he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he praised God. And truly, this is glorious. That this, this is a glorious incident where this king, who's for seven Idan acting like a cow, the moment he gets his sanity back, he knows that, that it's God who rules and he praises God and he gives God glory. And what a glorious thing that is. And one day, all will do this. One day, all men will lift up their eyes to heaven, not in defiance, but in praise to God. What a glorious thing that is. Joyce Baldwin, I think, uh, well remarks here, sanity begins with a realistic self-appraisal. That's how you know you're really sane. God gives you back your sanity and you know, God, glory be to you, for you, in fact, rule. Now he saw the truth of things. Nothing is more insane than human pride, Robert Culver wrote. Nothing is more insane than human pride. Really, this acting like a cow was not really his insanity. His insanity was what was before this. Him acting like a cow is sort of just God showing how crazy this guy really is. It's just a manifestation of the insanity that he was already in. Nothing is more sober and sensible than to praise God, Culver says. Do you believe that? I mean, what's more crazy, acting like a cow or taking pride and thinking you're independent from God? What do you think? Both are crazy, right? But I think this particular judgment came upon him to highlight what his problem was. Could you imagine if all the leaders of the earth sang this song in verse 34 and 35 that Nebuchadnezzar here sings? This is the song from the lips of a ruler. Imagine if all of them sang this song and, the, and Revelation 15, 3 and 4 says all of them will one day. This song of Nebuchadnezzar, all will sing. We see that in Revelation. It will be the great hallelujah chorus that Handel uh, envisioned when he wrote the Messiah. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God in Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Praise God. He shall reign forever. Men shall not. In verse 35, this is, what he, this is what he acknowledges in verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including the great kings. This is a great blow to our sense of power. It doesn't mean that God doesn't count you to be something valuable. What it means is you're accounted as nothing. You have no power. When God makes decisions, he doesn't bite his nails thinking about what, what are you going to do if, if you don't like this. There's nothing that you can do. You have no power. You're not considered uh, when God draws up his plans and considers the opponents. There is no opponent. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. Men do not. Men do according to God's will. No one can knock God off of the hill. 
No one can ward off his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? And this is seen in Nebuchadnezzar's case. What could Nebuchadnezzar do to stop God's judgment? When the angel speaks from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, it's time for you now to be driven away. Could he have run away and avoided that punishment? Could he have put up his umbrella? What could he have done? Nothing. He was utterly helpless in the face, in the, in the hands of God. No one can ward off God's hand. And also, no one can complain to God and say, what are you doing? This is very important. No one can complain. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he couldn't either. Because the moment his sanity came back, he, he humbled himself before God and acknowledged that what was done was good. He, he didn't say, why did you do that? <laughs> right? That was me. That was wrong. And so it will be at the end of the days when God judges the world. No one can stop God and no one will say, what are you doing? This is wrong. Because everyone will know that what God does is right. Everyone will know that they deserve that. Everyone will realize that God was not just being a bully kicking people off the hill, that God was actually executing justice by his judgments. we'll all say it is a good thing that his kingdom lasts forever. For God is a good king who isn't cruel and capricious. But as Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges in verse 37, all his works are true and his ways are just. And what he was doing was humbling me in my pride, my insanity, my evil. And that was good. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony speaks today for all who will listen. It's one of the most remarkable testimonies that we have in history. And we shouldn't look over it and and miss how enormous this testimony truly is. God will humble all pride. God will humble all pride. No flesh, the Bible says, will glory in God's presence. Whether our glorying comes from our, uh, our works, the things that we do, the cities that we build, the music that we make, the food that we make, God will humble all pride in anything that we do where we take the glory. God will humble all of our glorying in our good works. Anytime we think that we have righteousness on our own, One of the biggest source of pride the Bible teaches us is our self-righteousness where we think that we are good in and of ourselves, that we have some goodness before God. And when we become Christians, God turns up his heat and he brings us to see our sins and to see that that's an insane way of thinking. In his mercy, he does that. And he delivers us from our insanity and he delivers us from our sins through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And this shows what an amazing king God is. The king of the hill. Who ever heard of a great king who throws off all his enemies off the hill, but he loves his enemies so much who hate him that he would seek to also lift them up and save them from certain death. What a glorious king God is. That he wants to give us salvation and make us truly secure in Him. 
When we become Christians, we wake up from our moral madness. We lift up our eyes to heaven and we give God glory and praise. Until you become a Christian, my friends, to God you are like a cow in the way that you think. Just because man doesn't see you that way doesn't mean that's not the way that you are. And beware if God makes you uncomfortable. It would be a blessing if he does that before it's too late so you can see. May we Christians who know God's wonderful work through Christ give God all the glory and like Nebuchadnezzar, be glad to tell the world about who God is and what he has done for us because it's no longer about us anymore and our glory and our righteousness and our works and how great we are. We know who the king is. We know how good he is and it's our joy to give him the glory that belongs to him, the true king of the hill. Let's pray. Lord, we're excited for the day when all the earth acknowledges that you rule. We're excited for the day that everyone sings the the praises that we read Nebuchadnezzar sing to you, Lord. Thank you that that's a, a day that's coming that you have promised. Thank you that before that day, God, you have shown us Christians our folly and brought us into the truth. May we, Father, give you glory every day and remember who is the king and who has the power. Thank you, God, for this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.